Well, hello everyone, and thank you, thank you for joining our Medical Alerts Live Healthy Hour. We're glad that you chose to join us today for our latest installment of the Live Healthy Hour series, where we're focusing on COVID-19 and how to stay safe during the holidays. Um, we're excited to continue bringing these events to our members and those interested in this valuable information and what's been a very challenging time for all of us. So today, um, I will be your host, Melody Howard. I'm the Community Alliances Director at Medical Alert Foundation, and joining me as co-host is Julie Hilton, Vice President Communications. Welcome, Julie. Hello, everyone. So today's agenda, we'll talk a little bit about Medical Alert. Um, meet our speaker. Um, we'll spend the vast majority of our time on Q&A with Dr. David, or excuse me, Dr. Hartman, and we'll um, cover the subjects of COVID-19 transmission, flu season, and moving forward. And then we'll be sharing some resources for you. So a little bit about Medical Alert Foundation. For those who have not joined us um, in the past, I'll share some information that you may not know. Um, what started as a doctor's idea to protect his daughter grew to become a globally recognized symbol for medical emergencies. The organization began in 1956 when the original ID was created. What's so unique about Medical Alert is that we go beyond just an ID. Our IDs are backed by our dedicated emergency response team 24-7. This team is standing by to relay your critical medical information to those treating you in an emergency. Medical Alert is the only nonprofit organization in the medical ID space. All of our revenues fund our emergency services and help provide IDs and memberships to people in financial need. Our mission remains unchanged over the past 64 years, and that's to save and protect lives by sharing vital information in, in our members' moments of need. How the Medical Alert service works. It starts out with a custom engraved ID with your most vital medical information that first responders need to know right away. In an emergency, they contact our 24-7 emergency response team to get your full health record. Your health record includes additional health data as well as emergency contacts, which we relay to emergency personnel. Um, we've trained first responders to look for the Medical Alert ID, empowering them with vital information. It's so important that first responders know about any existing conditions so that you get the best possible care. We're your voice when you need us most. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to our very special guest, Dr. William Hartman. Um, he's Assistant Professor, Department of Anesthesiology, University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Dr. Hartman's current research focuses on quick implementation of therapy trial protocols to expeditiously bring novel treatments from the laboratory to the patient. Dr. Hartman is principal investigator for the convalescent plasma trial, the Regeneron studies, and the AstraZeneca vaccine trial at University of Wisconsin Health. Welcome, Dr. Hartman. Thank you very much. So now we'll go ahead and um, jump into those questions. Um, we had a lot of great questions, so I apologize in advance if we couldn't get to all of those, but we're going to cover as much as we possibly can. So for our first question submitted by David, Mary, and Jessica, what do we know about how COVID-19 is transmitted? And with the holidays coming up, what does that mean for family gatherings? So we know that COVID-19 is a very uh, transmittable disease, meaning that uh, it moves from person to person with relative ease. Uh, 
the predominant way of it moving from, from one person to another is through respiratory droplets. And so when you talk or when you sneeze, um, when you shout at the football game, um, there's aerosols and there's, there's uh, droplets that will uh, come up and out of you. And those are uh, containing this COVID-19 virus that is then in the air and can enter another person through their nose, through their eyes, through their mouth. Um, if you have it on your hands and you touch something else, uh, if the, the next person to touch that has the chance of picking up the virus or um, you know, the, the virus could even come onto your hands and you could wipe your mouth or wipe your nose and enter it that way. And so it's predominantly a respiratory born or a virus that um, is, is part of these respiratory droplets that goes from person to person. But um, th there are other means that, that a person can contract it, um, which is why it is able to, to be so infective and, and has infected so many people worldwide, really. What does this mean for the holidays? Well. One of the, the, the things that the, the virus tends to like is uh, less filtered areas. And so being inside and warmer, drier environments uh, probably encourages this virus for, to, for move to, to one person to another. And so if you are gathering with people, if you're meeting with people that you don't typically have in your own bubble, that uh, live in your own house, if you have other people coming in from out of town, um, there is a chance that you're going to introduce the virus into your bubble and other people could be infected. And so this is a common time for flu season um, and where we usually see the, the spikes of, of influenza that everyone gets the flu shot for. We're anticipating that we're going to see a similar spike with uh, the COVID-19 during the same time now. So I think that part of the answer is, as uh, much as 2020 has been nothing but normal, these holidays coming up will be uh, not normal either. I know a lot of people are looking forward to the holidays, but they will look very different than they have in the past. Unfortunately, I think that's the case. You know, I personally am uh, one of 10 kids Oh, wow. um, and, and my parents live in Chicago, and I have not been able to, to see my siblings or my, uh, my parents since March. Um, the holidays are usually the time that all of us can come across the country and, and get together in one spot, and uh, whether it's Thanksgiving or, or, uh, or, or Christmas or New Year's, um, right. one of those holidays we've always chosen. Uh, that's not, not going to happen for us this year. Yeah. Well, um, I feel your pain yep. and uh, we do have several questions coming up now about kind of like specifics on if people are getting together, how do we keep them safe? Sure. So Melody. Great. Does the number of people gathering inside really matter or is ma wearing a mask, maintaining social distance and or maintaining distance and sanitizing more important? So I think this comes down to um, kind of a question of, of risk. And obviously the, the lowest risk you're going to have is to celebrate in your home with 
the people of your immediate family that you spend time with every day. You know who they interact with, you know what the routines are, uh, you know how uh, mitigating things that you've done in terms of washing hands, having hand sanitizer within your house, um, how that, that helps keep things safe for you. Whenever you bring other people into your house that live outside of your bubble, you're running the risk of, of introducing uh, that, that virus into, into your home uh, and infecting you and, and your family members. And so it's not so much really the, the number of people gathering so inside of a place as it is um, bringing people from, from outside your bubble into your bubble. And that's, that's where some of the risk comes in. Um, with that risk, you can minimize it by wearing a mask, by uh, maintaining social distancing, and, and definitely um, by washing your hands and using hand san sanitizer. Um, these are all ways of, of mitigating that risk. But if, if the people that are coming from outside the bubble into your bubble if they uh, are family members, how likely is this to happen? And if, you know, great uncle Joe uh, says he's not going to wear a mask, are you going to ask him to leave? Uh, there, there's a lot of things that will come into play that will uh, alter the amount of risk uh, that, that's going to happen. And so what's been recommended is that uh, if you are going to gather inside, that you still maintain social distancing when you have people from outside the bubble, that you wear a mask and that you continue to, uh, to wash your hands and, and use hand sanitizer. And I've also heard it has something to do about the amount of time you spend in an enclosed space too. And that's an evolving thing right now. It used to be that uh, a close contact was uh, a person who you, are within six feet of for 15 minutes or, or longer mm -hmm. uh, in a continuous time. Mm -hmm. Now they have changed that to a total time. So mm -hmm. uh, within six feet or close distance to somebody um, for 15 minutes total is what is uh, considered a close contact. Wow. And um, uh, that definition just changed uh, in the last week or two. And mm -hmm. so it, it's evolving. Um, but it, it's important to remember that there's nothing magic really either about that six feet. You can't draw a line in the sand and stand on one side and say you're safe, and on the other side, you're not. Uh, it's just kind of a, a, a distance that is, 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 has been effective, but there's really nothing magic about it. So our next question submitted by Claudia and Liz, is it safe to have Thanksgiving dinner outside? Um, do we need to wear masks if we're outside? And again, uh, this comes to uh, mitigating that risk as much as possible. Being outside is better than being inside. Uh, things can disperse a lot more outside uh, and the, the chance of, of becoming infected does go down. However, if there is an infected person and you're not wearing a mask and they're not wearing a mask, even though you're still outside, there's still an increased chance then of you contracting the virus. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's, it's recommended again, if people come from outside of, of your bubble in 
to your bubble, as happens with, with these holidays now, that uh, you do wear a mask and you still maintain social distancing uh, as much as possible. So our next question, um, Sharon would like to know, is a small holiday dinner safe with three or four people if I know they're as careful as I am about protocol and safety? So I know that uh, super spreader events tend to get the most publicity, especially these days uh, with the, the elections coming uh, right around the corner. However, uh, it's kind of a prevailing thought right now that it's these smaller, more intimate uh, gatherings of people that are causing uh, the surges that we see, especially uh, where I am in the Midwest. And so uh, there is no such thing as, as a safe dinner. Uh, when people are coming from outside of your, of your home into your home. Um, there's ways of mitigating that risk that we've talked about, you know, wearing a mask, um, uh, individually uh, serving up dishes so that people aren't going into the, the same food buffet, if you will, uh, washing your hands, um, maintaining your, your social distance as, as much as possible, being outside rather than inside if at all possible. So there are ways of, of keeping that risk lower, but um, these are really just safer options. There's no one safe option. We did have a couple questions come up about food preparation and if there was any uh, special precautions that should be taken. I know at the beginning of the pandemic, we were all kind of washing our groceries as they were coming into the house. And um, we hear now that that's maybe not as important as wearing a mask and some of the other um, precautions, but um, with food preparation specifically, is there anything people should think about? So I think it's still prudent to continue to, to, to wash your fruit, vegetables, everything that you, you bring uh, into your house. Um, however, there hasn't been uh, any clear-cut data suggesting that the virus can move from a food substance into your body. Okay. Uh, we, we just haven't, haven't seen that yet. Uh, where concern with food preparation comes in is how, how are you serving it? And so if it's in a buffet style um, that's kind of on a, a central table or a kitchen island mm -hmm. and people congregate around that, the, the chance of contracting the virus goes up if somebody's infected there uh, because people are in a close, close environment. They're using the same utensil to, to pick up food or they're all grabbing from a, a muffin in the basket. Right. Um, <laughs> ways like that uh, of, of presenting the food and, 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 and uh, doling it out to, to your guests, I, I think are more important to, to pay attention to than um, <clears throat> the actual preparation of the food itself. It definitely will be a different holiday, that's for sure. <laughs> Michelle would like to know, is there any safe way to visit with her aging parents during the holidays? So I think that this is a question on a lot of people's minds. And uh, it, it's, again, there's no safe way. There are safer ways. And so, you know, if you're going to visit your parents and they're, uh, they're older and there's a chance of them contracting the virus and then getting sick from the virus, uh, as we've seen in older, in older people, 
uh, then you'll have to do the, the safest things possible. So you're going to have to quarantine yourself for 14 days beforehand. That way you know you haven't contracted the virus. You should uh, test yourself before you go visit. Um, you can do one of these rapid tests that are, that are available now. Um, so that now you've quarantined yourself and you've tested yourself, you know that you're virus free. Uh, and then when you travel to see your parents, do it in your own car. Uh, don't stop along the way. Uh, you know, don't have any interactions with anybody. Don't stay in a hotel and then go over to your, to your parents' house. Um, these are all things that you can do to make sure that you're not bringing the virus into their home. Um, and, and so again, there's no safe way, but there are safer ways. And uh, even Dr. Fauci said, he, you know, there's no way that he can fault somebody for wanting to see their parents during the holidays or wanting to see their grandkids that they haven't seen uh, in months during the holidays. Um, he's not gonna fault everyone, or he's not gonna fault anyone for wanting to do that. Uh, he just wants people to do it in the safest way possible, knowing that there's going to be a risk, but we can minimize that risk as much as possible. So to your point, you were talking about grandchildren. So our next question is related to that from Margaret, Patricia, and Jane. I miss my grandchildren. How safe is it to get together with them, especially if they're going to school? So I, I've got five kids and three of them are back in school right now. Um, my oldest two are still at home. Uh, you may see them pop in here occasionally, hopefully not. Yeah. But uh, with, my, with my younger kids who who go to school, um, one of the classes this week had a, a student that came back as, as positive. And so that whole, that whole class then uh, has to stay home and quarantine for, for two weeks um, <clears throat> since there was a, a close exposure. I don't think, especially if the young kids are in school, that there's really a, a safe way to, to assure that they don't have uh, the virus or, or that they've been exposed to the virus. Um, again, uh, if, if this is something that, that needs to get done, I would take these extra measures of uh, even taking the kids out of school, isolating them, quarantining them for two weeks, having everybody get tested uh, prior to you visiting them um, to make sure that uh, at least in that moment of time, they are virus free. And that would be the, the safest way uh, to, to do the visit. But again, um, there, there is a risk. There is a risk. It's interesting. I'm uh, seeing some things pop up in the, uh, in the chat, uh, specific questions. And um, for lack of a better way to say it, everybody's kind of looking for a loophole or a shortcut. Um, if we leave the windows open, is it okay? If we wear a mask when, except for when we're chewing, is it okay? And I, I think what I'm hearing you say is that there is, there's a risk anytime you're getting together with anybody outside of your household. And really the only ways to mitigate those risks completely are to not get together with people outside your household. Um, but that uh, just, you know, the, the regular holiday gatherings that we're used to are, are not uh, not really safe for us right now. Right. And, you know, and, and there's varying degrees of risk 
you know, depending on, on who you are and what you do. Mm -hmm. I, I was on call last night. I spent the night in the hospital. Uh, I know that, you know, especially with the job I do as an anesthesiologist, uh, I have a high risk profession. Um, and I have to take certain things to, to, to mitigate and to minimize uh, that risk as much as possible so I don't bring the virus home to my family. But I know that, you know, the risk of me bringing it home is significantly more than even my kids coming home from school. Okay. Uh, there's, 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 there's varying degrees of risk. It's, it's all what you're willing to accept. So our next question from Andrea, Patty, and Jacqueline, do you recommend COVID testing before a holiday gathering? So I, I do, if you're gonna have um, people, who, especially who are uh, susceptible to getting quite sick from the virus. So uh, people who are older, are they coming over or are you visiting people who are older? Um, what are their comorbid conditions? Uh, folks with obesity, hypertension, uh, diabetes have been particularly hit with uh, COVID-19 and getting, getting ill with it. And so if, if these describe the situations that, that you're in for your, your holiday gathering, then by all means, you should have a COVID test to make sure you're not introducing uh, the virus into their bubble and vice versa. Thank you. So our next question is about travel. Um, Ellen asks, how safe is air or train travel? So in airplanes themselves, I think uh, they've shown that the filtration systems are so good that uh, being on the airplane with a mask on and appropriately distanced has been relatively safe. However, you still have to spend significant time in an airport. You still have transportation to get to the airport, um, whether it's Uber or, or Lyft or some other uh, form of transportation that, that gets you to the airport. Um, and those all have increased chances of being exposed. Uh, being on a train, um, their filtration systems aren't quite as good as what they have on airplanes. And uh, people tend to be in uh, closer environment really uh, within the train. And so I don't know that, uh, that that's the best way to, to, to travel if you have to. Um, truly the, the best way to, to go about any sort of travel is to travel in your own car uh, with the, the people that you know best, your, your own family. So this, um, the next question submitted by SH and Vivian, my family has elderly members as well as several people with chronic conditions like diabetes. Should we be getting together at all? Well, again, you know, I, I, I find it hard, especially at the holidays and especially when we've all been uh, separated from our families for so long to suggest to anybody that uh, they, they absolutely should not get together. But <clears throat> The chance of elderly people, and especially elderly people with chronic conditions like diabetes, like hypertension, like obesity, um, these, are, these are people that have the potential to get very, very sick uh, from COVID-19. And so uh, it's, it's a high risk environment. 
And none of us want to be responsible for getting one of our family members sick um, and, and watching them go into the hospital. Um, when, once a patient with COVID-19 is admitted to the hospital, it's a very lonely existence too. Um, you can talk by phone, you can talk by um, uh, a video app of some sort, but uh, the, the, the patient is, is isolated really from everybody except for a, the nurse and the doctors that are taking care of them. And so none of us want to put our family members in that situation. So I think you should uh, have serious uh, concern and thoughts and, and see, are you and is your family willing to accept that risk to, to get together? Or should we hope that things are much better next year and uh, we do the get together at, at that time? So our next question submitted by Lamar, and this category is uh, flu season. So how do I tell the difference between flu symptoms and coronavirus symptoms? And how important is it to get a flu shot this year? So this is actually an excellent question. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to discern uh, the, the symptoms of the flu from the symptoms of the coronavirus as they're both uh, respiratory-borne viruses that kind of attack the same organs. There are some, some subtle differences though that you probably would be able to tell. Most people, once they contract the coronavirus, uh, they lose the ability to, to smell and to taste. Uh, that doesn't typically happen with the flu. Um, and so that's one of the, the telltale signs. Um, anybody who uh, is thought to <clears throat> have contracted the coronavirus um, would probably also be tested for flu uh, just to see if they have influenza uh, as well um, or if they have influenza instead of the coronavirus. And so going to an urgent care or an emergency room uh, to get tested will also uh, help figure out which one you get. The, the best way to sort of avoid the situation though is to get that flu shot. Uh, influenza is still a very prevalent virus in our society. People get very sick from it every year. Uh, and there, there's a rush of patients. There's a the flu season um, that really happens around the holidays when people, people are gathered together uh, in, in large groups and you know, in indoor environments. Um, we in the medical community get worried that uh, the combination of an increase in COVID infections and an increase in influenza infections uh, together will overwhelm the hospital system. And so to, to minimize that as much as possible, there has been a, a very good effort to get people out and to get the flu shot. Uh, we have a vaccine for the flu. Um, it, it, it's, it's usually quite effective. And the more people that get it, the more people we can hopefully uh, keep out of uh, the hospital because of the flu. And so getting the flu shot will help you, but it also helps us uh, be able to take care of the other patients that are coming into the hospital. 
And I would guess that the same people that may be at a higher risk for severe illness from coronavirus are also the people that are at a higher risk for severe illness with the flu as well, right? Right, and, that, and that's played out. Again, you know, our vulnerable populations, uh, people who have comorbid conditions mm -hmm. um, and uh, people who are elderly. So uh, it's interesting, we've, we've probably done, I don't know, 14 different sessions around uh, different aspects of uh, the pandemic since April and pretty much the consensus from every single doctor we've talked to is get your flu shot. If you do nothing else this fall, get your flu shot. So um, just wanna make sure that message gets through. Um, we're gonna transition here a little bit to talking about some things um, you know, none of us are happy that we're in the place that we are now where we can't do a lot of the things that we consider normal. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of people like Dr. Hartman, other doctors and researchers that are working very hard to find ways to help us get back to normal or closer to normal um, than we have in a long time. And a lot of those are trials on um, potential treatments and vaccines. And so he's gonna talk a bit now about um, some of those pieces of research that he's been working on that will help us get to a better place. So Patricia had submitted this question, why are you conducting trials on the use of convalescent plasma and what do you hope to learn? So when this pandemic first came to the United States um, in the, the early part of, of 2020, but really started uh, coming close to home uh, around March or so, there were no effective treatments for COVID-19. Uh, there was some reports that maybe hydroxychloroquine could work, um, but even at our own hospital here, which is a pretty advanced medical center, uh, we were treating people symptomatically and giving them vitamin C and vitamin D and, and doing the best that we could do. But there was nothing that was attacking the virus itself. Historically, when, when these situations have popped up, one of the ways that you can go after a virus that doesn't have a vaccine as, uh, as COVID-19 uh, in this situation um, is to use convalescent plasma. And so convalescent plasma is again, um, taking the, the antibodies from a person who's already recovered from the virus and giving those antibodies, which are stored in the plasma, to somebody who is currently fighting the virus so that we can help get them better and get them out of the hospital. Uh, if you look back to even the Spanish flu in the early 1900s, uh, the use of convalescent plasma decreased uh, overall mortality by, by 50%. And so it had a significant effect. In, March, when, when this was hitting here, uh, when, when COVID-19 was really taking taken shape here uh, in the United States, we just didn't have any treatments available. And so we turned to history lessons. Uh, convalescent plasma was something that was there and something that needed to be tried because here we knew that there was a, a superpower that could neutralize and, and get rid of that virus in people because it did in the person who recovered. And so uh, we had to uh, at least uh, try it and see what happens, which led to 
trials on convalescent plasma to find out how effective it actually is. And then in, in what concentration of antibodies is the best? And when is the best time? Do you give it late in disease or do you give it early in disease? And so there's a, there was a lot of questions that needed to be answered uh, while we were trying to, to give patients a treatment to get them better. And so there was a lot of reasons for, for doing these trials with convalescent plasma because we wanted to, number one, find out how effective it is, how safe it is, but then when is it most effective? When should we be giving it to patients so that we can give them the best chance for, for a good outcome? This here actually summarizes uh, some of the trials that are going on. And one of the trials that I think is very important um, is happening uh, at Johns Hopkins is the, the center for it, but then uh, it's, it's uh, being uh, conducted in other universities uh, throughout the country uh, with the data uh, to be pulled together. And what's important here is, you know, is convalescent plasma an effective treatment for uh, patients as outpatients? So people who've gotten COVID-19 are, but they're not sick enough to be in the hospital. Can we give them convalescent plasma? And number one, will we keep them out of the hospital then? Uh, and number two, by giving them convalescent plasma, uh, early as outpatients, are we able to uh, decrease the, the recovery time uh, for their symptoms so they feel better faster? Another arm of that trial is looking at COVID-19 exposed individuals. So folks that live with or are in close contact with uh, people who are infected with COVID-19, but these people who will receive the convalescent plasma in this case they haven't been infected or turned positive anyway themselves. And so by giving convalescent plasma to individuals uh, who've been exposed to COVID-19 infection, can we prevent them from getting that infection? And so these are two very important ongoing uh, randomized control trials. So there is a placebo involved, but they want to get 600 participants in one 500 participants in the other, uh, and there's still significant room uh, to get enrolled in these trials. Uh, and they're, they're very important and extremely uh, helpful to us uh, down the line as, as better ways of figuring out how to treat and uh, prevent people from getting sick. For um, people that are exposed uh, in that second trial, Essentially, you're using the convalescent plasma almost like a vaccine. Is that right? So there's two types of immunity, really. Mm -hmm. There's, there's uh, active immunity and passive immunity. Active immunity would be a vaccine where you're putting something into a person's body to make them make their own antibodies. Mm -hmm. This convalescent plasma and some of the monoclonal antibodies that are out there, when you give those to a patient, that's called passive immunity. So you're just taking the antibodies that have been made in somebody else or in a factory and giving them to 
a, uh, a patient um, that hasn't been able to make them themselves yet. And, um, and so that's, it, it, it's in the absence of a vaccine, it's really the next best thing. Um, but their, their goal of having antibodies neutralize the virus, the goal of the vaccine and the goal of this therapy are exactly the same. I think we've covered that. Okay, great. And the next question submitted by Marcia and Thomas, who can participate in the trials and how do they apply? So uh, people who can participate in these trials, number one, um, there's, they have to either have been exposed uh, to, to COVID-19, have close contact with a, a person with COVID-19 uh, and within um, a couple of days time. Um, typically, they can't have received uh, a monoclonal antibody if they're going to uh, be participating in, uh, in the convalescent plasma trial. Um, and the, there's a few other immune deficiencies that would prevent you from uh, being uh, a part of this trial. Uh, the same goes true for the folks who have COVID-19 but aren't uh, sick enough to go to the hospital. But if you do have some symptoms like a fever um, uh, or a sore throat or a cough, um, these symptoms are typically enough to qualify you uh, for the study. And then what can the people participating in the study expect? Well, they can expect that they'll be followed up very closely. And so uh, they will get the uh, transfusion of convalescent plasma, mm -hmm. and they will uh, immediately look for, uh, you know, are there any signs of, um, of anaphylaxis or, or a bad reaction that happens? Convalescent plasma in general is a very safe uh, uh, medicine, if you will, to, to administer. It's a very safe product. Mm -hmm. And the safety data has held out with the COVID-19 uh, uh, convalescent plasma in the 20,000 uh, patients that were looked at by Mayo Clinic. Uh, it's a very safe therapy. But then over time, we want to be able to see, you know, were we able to get your symptoms resolved more quickly uh, by giving you convalescent plasma? So there'll be daily uh, phone calls and a diary that has to be kept so that we know what your symptoms are and, and where they are at. Um, the, the same goes true for the, the arm that's been exposed but is not COVID-19 positive initially. Um, we want to follow up with you to see, uh, number one, has it been safe? Has it been uh, received well in your body? Mm -hmm. um, but then also, um, you know, did you develop COVID-19? Um, and in, in, in doing so, uh, especially when we compare it to a placebo, uh, a placebo control, we should be able to tell how effective convalescent plasma is in allevi alleviating the disease, but also in pre preventing this disease. And does convalescent plasma work the same way as a blood transfusion where it has to match a blood type? It does. And we do uh, know the blood types of the, the people that we're going to, to transfuse and also of the, the plasma itself. Um, the, the reactions uh, tend not to be uh, as severe as when you transfuse 
uh, red blood cells. But uh, to, to keep everything as safe as possible and to, to administer this therapy as safely as possible, we do match to, to blood type just to make sure that we're giving uh, the, the best option to that patient so we're not introducing any co-founders into a situation where the, the patient is already uh, sick with a virus. Got it. There's a question coming up in the, um, in the chat that I, that I know you can speak to, um, was specifically around monoclonal antibodies and Regeneron, and I believe that's a, another study that you've been working on. So how is that different than convalescent plaza? Are you, are you looking for the same types of effects? Or are you thinking about the drugs in different ways? So the monoclonal antibodies are, are kind of the next generation of convalescent plasma. Mm -hmm. So with the Regeneron medicine that uh, we've been studying since about June uh, here at University of Wisconsin, uh, what they have done is they have looked within convalescent plasma to find out which of those antibodies, because there's millions of different antibodies, but they've, they've focused in on which one is the most specific for uh, this virus. Mm -hmm. And they found that this, this antibody that attacks the spike protein on the virus uh, in this one particular spot uh, tends to be uh, very effective in neutralizing the virus. Because if, the, if you block those spike proteins, then the virus cannot attach to cells and get into those cells. Right. Okay. Um, and so the, the monoclonal antibody for Regeneron is actually a combination of two different antibodies that, that attack uh, the, the spike protein. One of them they isolated from convalescent plasma. The other one uh, they isolated from a mouse model that has been genetically manipulated to have an, a human immune system. So kind of this unusual mouse model that they used also to uh, help develop antibodies to Ebola. Um, but it was effective here too. So the, the cocktail has these two antibodies, the one that mimics the, the, uh, the mouse from the mouse system and the one from the convalescent plasma. Uh, together, that's why they call it a cocktail. These are, are mixed together uh, in two concentrations. There's a lower concentration and a high concentration. And uh, we administer uh, one of these solutions or a placebo in the trial uh, to uh, a patient who is qualified for the trial. And then we follow them over a month's time uh, to find out, did their symptoms get better? Uh, we, we follow their viral load, so we know what the virus load was when we administered the medicine, and we watch that go down over time and see if it goes down more quickly than if the patient was just to recover on their own. Um, and then we also want to find out which dose works the best. Now, Regeneron has been in the news a lot lately um, because President Trump uh, got the high dose form of this. Uh, he was not part of a clinical trial, so they know that he got the medicine itself. And so he's kind of a, an interesting uh, experiment to all of us uh, in, the, in the medical community who are, who are studying this drug just to see how he does and over time how, uh, how he recovers um, and, you know, does he get reinfected later on? Uh, these, are, these are all questions that we don't know the answer to 
And so it's very interesting to, to follow him uh, as well as the other patients that are part of the, the clinical trial itself. Going back to the convalescent plasma for a second, um, I think that's being used in some cases already as a treatment, but is that only in a hospital setting? So right now it's only being used in a hospital setting mm -hmm. uh, as a treatment, mm -hmm. but uh, like the, at that Hopkins study, they are, uh, have a clinical trial that's up looking to see if you give convalescent plasma to patients before they even uh, are requiring hospitalization, will it keep them out of the, ho the hospital? And so that's an, an important endpoint that, that they're looking at. Yeah. There's also a national study going on um, looking at patients that come to an emergency room mm -hmm. and giving them convalescent plasma while they're in the emergency room itself. And um, oftentimes these patients can, can probably go home after uh, treatments just to make sure that they're, they're doing okay. But uh, that, that also is hoping to uh, look at that endpoint. You know, are we able to get patients quick, better quicker? Are we able to keep them out of the ICUs and off of ventilators? Can you decrease mortality um, by, just by giving this convalescent plasma as early as possible? And just to be clear, right now, if you're diagnosed with COVID, the only way that you can get the convalescent plasma in an outpatient setting is if you are part of one of these trials. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Um, I believe that the EUA or the emergency use authorization mm -hmm. uh, that the FDA has put forward for, for convalescent plasma is only for hospitalized patients. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that, you know, when people think about why should I participate, um, you know, if, especially if you've been diagnosed with COVID, the opportunity to, to get that plasma that, you know, has in the past shown uh, the ability to prevent you from getting sicker and going into the hospital, that's a huge benefit of participation. It, it is. And, you know, it's, it's all, I've, I've said this time and again, it's about the community saving the community here. And so, you know, I, as a person who uh, uses convalescent plasma in the hospital, I'm just really a middleman. Um, somebody had to donate that and somebody had to, to, to receive it. Um, you know, it's someone who's just helping their neighbor. They may never meet this person. They may not, you know, know anything about them, but uh, the community helping the community. In terms of these clinical trials and these clinical studies, um, joining them gives us information so that we can help the next person as well. And so this, uh, this idea of uh, the community coming out for their neighbors, helping each other out, um, trying to end this pandemic, this is where people can participate and help. And this is where, uh, in the end, truly the community is saving the community. One of the questions that keeps coming up um, in the chat is, whether or not it's been confirmed that someone can be reinfected with COVID once they've already had the disease and then been cleared of it. Um, and I think that probably goes to some of the questions around like how long do those antibodies last? And when, if I've had COVID, when can I actually donate convalescent plasma that's gonna be the most beneficial for, uh, for use in a trial like yours? Sure, so the when we first started this, we didn't have a, a test for the antibodies. So we didn't know 
um, what antibody concentrations were of the convalescent plasma. Mm -hmm. We just knew that there was antibodies in there mm -hmm. and in the plasma, and we, we were using it just to get our best shot. As the tools have uh, improved, uh, we have found that using high concentration or high titer antibody uh, is, is best. Mm -hmm. Those uh, uh, antibodies, uh, usually th those high titer of antibodies, usually reflect uh, a person who's more recently recovered from COVID-19. So if the patient is two weeks out from the end of their symptoms, um, has felt, felt well, you know, I would go in, uh, if you want to donate plasma, I would go into an American Red Cross or, or New York Blood Center, and they will uh, be able to, to measure your antibody level and tell you if you're a good candidate uh, to, to donate plasma. I think that those are, uh, those are the patients that we're, we're, we're focused on so that we can get the, the, the best high quality plasma. Right. That being said, some people two, three, four months out still have high concentrations of, of antibodies and are still excellent donors. We don't know that the study of this virus is still too, too young, that uh, we don't know, number one, how long antibodies stay in the system and why some people uh, have high concentrations of antibodies several months after uh, recovering from, from the virus. Mm -hmm. uh, these are questions that, that really need to be investigated. In terms of uh, being reinfected, there are documented cases of people who've been reinfected with COVID-19. Um, there are several uh, centers throughout the country that uh, genetically sequence COVID-19, and so they're able to tell that the virus that a person is infected with the second time is different and distinct from the virus they were infected with the first time. Mm -hmm. That confirms that uh, the patient has been, has been reinfected or infected a second time with COVID-19. As opposed and to- This has not been a common occurrence. Right. I'm sorry? No, I just say, as opposed to a reemergence of the infection they had before. Exactly. Okay. And, and, you know, this is not a common occurrence, but it, it is something that, that has happened. Um, and so uh, to, to say it doesn't happen, um, would, 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 that would be uh, spreading false information. Well, as you say, we're learning every day more and more about this virus. We are. Um, the next question- It continues to, to be a humbling, a humbling virus. <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> we had many um, folks submit this last question or one of these questions. Um, what's the latest on a vaccine? What's the timeline and when could it be available to the general public? So, and this is the, the million dollar question. <laughs> uh, the, the, a very important tool that will take us back to a, a life much closer to our normal lives is going to be a vaccine. Uh, and there's various vaccine trials going on right now. Here, um, I'm in charge of the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine trial that we're running at University of Wisconsin. Um, the, the vaccine trials are in different stages right now. Um, ours is 
here at the, the beginning of the, the stage uh, three or the phase three of the, of the trial. So um, it's already gone through the first two phases where they've established that it can in, induce antibody formation and uh, essentially a, that it's a safe vaccine to administer. Now we want to see in a large population, does it continue to be safe and how effective is it? Uh, this is just one of the COVID-19 vaccines, however. There are several others by Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, Moderna, mm -hmm. um, several other companies out there. And they're all using slightly different technologies um, to get to the same endpoint. The Moderna uh, vaccine study recently uh, completed its enrollment. So they've gone to their 30,000 uh, participants and they're now gathering the data on, on all of those 30,000 participants to see how effective their vaccine is. Uh, it appears to have been very safe, but they wanna see how effective it is. How, you know, what is the incidence of, of reduction in COVID-19 cases right. uh, in, pe in people who receive the vaccine versus those that receive the placebo? The FDA and the uh, Data Monitoring Safety Board which is an independent body that evaluates the data, uh, they have requested that uh, after the last person is injected, that there be at least two months of follow-up data on every person who, who receives the vaccine or the placebo so we can evaluate uh, the effectiveness and the overall safety profile. Um, and that timeline alone uh, suggests that a vaccine probably would not be available until at least the end of this year and beginning of next year. But for widespread distribution, it'll probably take uh, even even longer. So I would anticipate um, by mid-year 2021, we'll start to have a vaccine available, distributed, and being administered to, to people uh, who want to receive it. Should our expectation for a vaccine be that it's similar to the flu vaccine, which won't necessarily always 100% of the time prevent you from, um, from getting the flu, but if you, do, if you do come down with the flu, it could be uh, with reduced symptoms or reduced time of illness. Is it the same principle? It is. So there's um, uh, the, 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 the goal of the AstraZeneca trial, which I can speak to um, being a part of it. Um, the goal there is to decrease the incidence of COVID-19 in people who've received the vaccine versus those who received the placebo, reduce the incidence by 50%. And then the people that still get COVID-19 despite having the vaccine, we hope that because their immune systems have been primed to fight the virus, that we can uh, reduce the severity of the symptoms with the vaccine. This is very similar in principle to the influenza vaccine that people get every year. So it's not a magic bullet for making the virus go away, but it is a way to reduce the, um, the mortality rate and the incidence of severe illness that people experience. Correct. It's, it's a way of, of keeping it in check, if Got you it. will. Well, I think our last question is, um, is a, a very important one and one that you've alluded to a little bit already. Great, and how can everyone on this call do 
what can we do to help make these clinical trials successful? So participate. That's, to, that's, what, that's what you can do. So if you have COVID-19 or if you uh, um, uh, come into contact with someone who has COVID-19, then going um, that you could participate in. Mm-hmm. And so uh, look at here, um, you can look at the covidplasmatrial.org, uh, which will tell you, here it is up here, um, you know, if you qualify for, for the trial and where it is located closest to your location so that uh, you can participate. But participation is key. Uh, again, it's the whole idea of the, co- the community saving the community. And this is how you can do your part in helping us figure out how to treat people down the road. And we are just so grateful that uh, people um, can, can do this heroic thing of when they're not feeling very good, when they're scared, they still stand up and raise their hand and say, can I help? What can I do to help? This is what you can do. You can, you can participate in these trials. I, we did have a question in the initial round that said, you know, I've been diagnosed, but I was told to quarantine. Does that mean I shouldn't go participate in a trial? Um, how would you answer that? No, so um, one of the outpatient trials that we do here with Regeneron, mm-hmm. uh, we have uh, uh, an environment that's set up to accept a, a, a person with COVID-19. Um, they're isolated from everybody else. They're on a different floor from everybody else. Uh, we can give them the medicine and we can do this all safely with our, with our adequate PPE that, that we have. So there are ways of getting you from point A to point B and then uh, to, to safely um, enroll you in a trial and get you um, the, the trial drug or placebo uh, that you've signed up for um, so that you can, you can participate. Wonderful. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, if you can't participate, then you likely know someone that could. Um, almost all of us could uh, name someone who we know that has been recently diagnosed or been exposed and letting them know the availability of these trials, even if you can't participate yourself, just getting the word out there is another way that we all can take part in helping move us to a better future. So um, I really encourage anyone to share this information far and wide um, so that we can get uh, more people enrolled in the trials. And once those trials are fully subscribed, then start to get results that are going to benefit everyone. So I want to thank you so much, Dr. Hartman, for your time today. I know that you're busy and on call all night and Um, running several different trials and seeing patients. So it means um, so much that you would take the time to come here and share your wisdom and information and learnings with with everyone on this call today. So thank you. And and thank you for for having this forum so that we can get as much information out to people as possible, Um, especially at this time during the holidays. I'm just grateful to organizations like yours who do so much to, to get the word out. Well, thank you. Um, and speaking specifically about the holidays, I, we have a couple of things that we'll send in a follow-up email to everyone that uh, registered. There's some really good CDC information about how COVID spreads and what that means for holiday celebrations. And um, to Dr. Hartman's point earlier about, you know, how do you weigh those risks? 
And then um, there's a really wonderful article, um, this one about how to cope with family gatherings and the coronavirus pandemic that speaks not to just like measuring the risk, but also having the hard conversations um, that you may have to have with some members of your family and sort of how to prepare yourself mentally, emotionally for that. And I think that's a whole, whole other element um, that uh, is important here. So uh, we'll send a follow-up email to the folks that um, all signed up for today's event, and we will include links to those articles and to the, uh, the clinical trial so that you'll have that information as follow-up. I would also encourage you to visit um, Medics, Medical Alert's COVID-19 Resource Center. We keep this updated on a regular basis with trusted sources that, um, that we've vetted to provide you know, very um, up-to-date and uh, trustworthy information about coronavirus, and especially how you live with uh, the coronavirus environment if you have any type of uh, specific chronic medical condition, as many Medical Alert uh, members do. So you can find all that information there. And I am going to hand it back to you, Melody. Great. Uh, so continuing on with our Medical Alert resources, if you've enjoyed this healthy hour, we do have um, on our website, our past healthy hours, so you can feel free to um, go and take a listen to those. We've had, to Julie's point earlier, we've had a number of events and talked about a number of things. Um, everything's kind of pointed back to, you know, how do we deal with coronavirus and having chronic conditions or how do we manage stress? Um, how do we um, deal with caregiving in the age of the coronavirus? So lots of great resources for you there. Um, if you don't mind, we'd love to hear about um, your experience today. Was the session helpful for you? I'm gonna go ahead and throw a survey up on the screen for you. If you don't mind um, answering that for us, we'd like to know, was it helpful, very helpful, not helpful? Um, this will help to frame what we do in the future. So I'll give you a few moments to continue and um, answer that. We want to thank you so much for joining us today. And we will have a replay available of, of today's event on tomorrow on our website. And that will be in the area where all of our healthy hours are located. I want to thank you so much for, for joining us today and um, wish you all the best and take care and stay safe. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hartman. Thank you, Absolutely. Julie. Absolutely. Thank you.